You're listening to RevOps FM with Justin Norris. Welcome to RevOps FM, everyone. Today's guest is a special one for me because it's someone I work with and who was actually my boss until about a month ago. Benjamin Marshall is Chief Operations Officer here at 360 Learning. He started his career in finance, worked as a strategy consultant for a few years at McKinsey. And then for the last five years, he's been here at 360 Learning, where I work. And he's moved from being an individual contributor on the ops team to being one of the key executives in the company and really someone who has a huge amount of responsibility for its success. And I've asked Ben on the show quite selfishly, actually, because as you'll see, he's incredibly intelligent and incredibly effective in his role. And when I meet someone who is super effective in that way, who has some kind of special skill set, my process is I try to absorb that skill set and level myself up. So for me, it's not about what they know, it's about how they think. My goal here is really to unpack that mindset, internalize ways of working, and use that to make myself better. So that's my goal. And Ben, you're possibly now reconsidering your decision to chat with me. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me. Very happy to do it. Awesome. I want to start out with big picture, first principles, what is operations type question, because two points of context that I think it's useful for listeners to know. Ops has a very significant and prominent role within 360 learning and its way of working. We can talk about that, but more so I think than I've seen at any other company. And the vision of ops here is a, it feels different to me also than what I've seen at many other companies. And I think clearly you've, you've had a role in driving that. So I'm curious, what is your vision of operation? How do you define the mandate and the role? That's a great question. I think the role of ops is to help each team in the company perform better you know, today, this year, and be ready for the future, the next quarter, the next year. That's the two, I would say, items in the ops responsibility. And how we do it, we do four things. The first one is we are the source of truth for the KPIs, the benchmark data, you know, uh, having this factual knowledge of where the team is versus where the market is. Second, we always try to understand where we can improve. So identify you know, opportunities for improvement. Third, we help the team and the leader of the team implement those recommendations. That's where the processes, the tools comes in. And then fourth, we help them maintain and run, you know, the business. So I would say that's really to me the mission and how we do it in the ops team at 360. And I think how any ops team should run probably. I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of today's episode, Knack. You know, I love marketing automation software, but let's be honest, the email and landing page builders are usually terrible. You can't make it nice without a developer and marketers are going to find a way to break things or go off brand. You do not have time for that. So Knack is totally different. You set the guidelines and then give your users a building experience that's slick, modern and beautiful. When they're done, everything goes to your map at the push of a button. And don't worry, it supports global teams, approval workflows. It's got your integrations. So head on over to revops.fm forward slash NAC. That's K-N-A-K. And get a special offer just for my listeners. Many ops teams end up as service departments. So they may have that mandate in mind, but they're fielding a lot of requests. You have team that you're supporting and that team is coming to you and asking you to do some stuff. And at the same time, you are also going to yeah. them and asking them to do some stuff because you're identifying things that you think should change, or you think should improve. And inevitably, it's really easy to just get into that. Like, I'm, I have so many things coming my way, I don't even have time to think about the things that they should do and, and go back the other way. How do you think about that yeah. balance? It's a great question. And I think it's always, a, it's always a challenge, it's never solved. But I think if you get stuck in that mindset of, uh, you know, being flooded by requests of the business and, and being 
always working on tools and processes, it's probably you stuck. You are stuck in the third uh, responsibility of ops, which is you know to help implement processes and tools. And you didn't take time before to build this framework to monitor the KPIs and you know to be the source of truth for the business. So they are not coming to you proactively to ask, okay, where we are, that's just where we could be, that's just where the market is. So you're not in that discussion. So you arrive too late and you're stuck in the third item, which is just implementation. So probably it's a question of how you manage to create your ops team and how you position it versus the team you're serving. If you don't manage to get in those strategic discussions, then you are just only going to be in the implementation. The risk that I see is if you only focus on the on the strategic aspect of the role, you can also be too far from the field and, and therefore, you know, disconnect from the field and fail to implement what you're trying to do. And we've seen that at 360 as well. When you, you know, you start to take too much out of the VP responsibility, then you lose the buy-in of the VP you're working with, and then you struggle to also to have an impact. So that is the two risks, I think, for an ops team is to try to be too strategic and take too much of the VP or C-level you're working with, or being only an implementation team because you failed to take a step back, look at the KPIs and ask yourself, you know, what are the priorities? I'm glad you mentioned that because I've certainly felt the risk of being too tool process oriented or being too reactive, but I hadn't yet articulated to myself the other risks that you mentioned of taking away to like, I've thought of it in the sense of like, if I'm doing all these things, like what, what are the teams actually doing? Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like it almost starts to feel like you're doing their job. And that is a very difficult line to walk. Something that you said that kind of had a clue for me was looking at the KPIs and being one of the key pillars of how we work here is around being impact oriented. And I think that's actually really hard for people who have been in a mode of executing, who have been tactical for a very long time, who are used to think, tell me what you want. And I'm an expert at parsing those requirements, figuring out how to do them really, really well. And that's an important skill. But the idea of actually going proactively and looking at KPIs is kind of foreign to them. How would like super tactical as an ops person, how should they try to balance that? Like, should they just block time in their calendar, look at KPIs every day? Like, how do you, you are always tuned into our metrics. That's one of the things that impresses me about you. And where do you, how do you find that time? How do you do that as a habit? So ju just myself, uh, the first thing I do when I open my uh, computer, to be honest, is to check the few metrics I care about. That's the first thing I do when I open my computer in the morning. I always look at, for me right now, SQLs, uh, where we are in the booking versus the target, uh, the conversion rate, the forecast of the conversion rate, because that's what I look at right now. So I think every ops person, whatever the scope they're covering, should have the same routine every morning, probably, or whenever you want, but daily. Look at the main KPIs of the team you're looking at and ask yourself, you know, where are we versus where we should be? That's, that's, I think, the critical part. And when I was in customer success ops, that's what I was doing the same every morning, looking at churn forecasts, looking at advocacy, G2 reviews, reading them, et cetera. So I think the routine is really important so that you start to show that you own the metrics as well. The team are owning the metric, but you also are owning the metric. And it's this sense of ownership, which I think is critical. If you don't feel that you own, you know, that, that the KPI, the most important KPI, the team you're working with, don't feel like you're owning them and you can have an impact on them, then it's going to be tough, I think, to be seen by the business as a real business partner. That's the first part to your question. The second thing I wanted to say, because yeah. I thought of something before, was that there is a question of how you position the upstream. I think first, it's important to take incoming requests, create the buy-in and show your, you know, you're giving value to the team you're working with. And I think that's how I did it at 360 when I was doing customer success ops. I started 
by being really open to any resource. But in the back, I was already starting to implement, you know, what are actually the main KPIs? What actually will drive value for that team? Building a KPI tree of what are you know, the KPI level one, level two, level three that are actually driving performance. And once I had that, I had a clear idea, a very clear picture of where we should focus our efforts. And because I had that vision, then I can start to push back on the, the request from the field. Because I, I have the buy-in, they know I can do things. I did things for them, so they like me, in a sense. But now I have the vision mm -hmm. of what actually drives results. So I can have the discussion with the VP or the C-level and say, your managers are asking me to do X, Y, Z. But looking at this picture of this KPI tree, I don't think this is the main issue of the team. I think actually the main issue is there, and this is what we should do. And, you know, switching that, having that conversation then with the VP or the C-level changes completely the dynamic in the work. Now you become a strategic partner for them. You own this KPI tree and you're helping them identify where are the main issues. Because themselves, you know, a CRO, for example, especially in a fast-growing company at the scale of 360s, you know, I joined, we were at 10 million AR, now we are at 50. The CRO is heavily involved in every deal, looking at every line. So it's also a challenge for this person to take a step back and look at the, at the, at the team and say, okay, where are the main issues? So if you bring that clarity to them, it's also a lot of value you're providing for the C-level or the VP. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe that's, you know, you provide value to the managers and the IC with tools and processes. You provide value to the VP and to the C-level with this clear overview of what are the KPIs, what are the benchmark, what are the four or five initiatives we should do, which want to dramatically improve. And it, it sounds to me, based on what you're saying, like a, a lot of ops people work with KPIs, but they might say like, all right, business leader, tell me what the KPIs you yeah. care about are, and I'll figure out how to report on them for you. But it sounded like you were actually define, you know, diagnosing the business, analyzing the business, defining those KPIs. And then you're pushing that back to the leaders and saying, here's, here's what you should care about, which is a really important distinction if yeah. you think about it. And the way to do it is, you know, I'm not trying to impose anything on them, just bringing facts. And that's one of the key success factors of Ops in my opinion. There are a few of them, but the ability to be seen as someone who is completely, you know, fact-based, metrics, I'm agnostic, you know, is really important. So. The picture that I'm showing to them, this KPI tree, there is no debate whether it's right or wrong. You know, it, a KPI tree, it's, it's, there is no right or wrong answer. There is just one KPI tree for sales, one for customer success. So there is no argument. And then I'm bringing other facts, which is our performance today. And then I'm bringing other facts, which is where the benchmark is. And then, you know, I'm not deciding for them. I'm helping them understand why, you know, this is the decision to, to make. So I'm not forcing them to take decision. I'm not asking them to do anything. I'm helping them see that this is the right decision based on facts. You know, a lot of ops people kind of uh, grumble amongst themselves, like, oh, like I'm, I'm doing these things that don't make sense or, you know, my marketing team or my sales team or whatever, they have this project. I don't agree with it and I have to execute it. And then looking at things through the lens of this tree, it removes a lot of that ambiguity because like, here's where it's broken. Here's what we need to do. And, you know, it may work, it may not, but at least there isn't this debate about whether it's on target or not yeah. anymore. Exactly. And if it's very factual, you remove also the emotional aspect of, of you know, discussion. You could have, you know, a manager is sending you thousands of requests. You're going to start to say no, they are, they are going to be annoyed. But then if you can have a factual decision on why you think, you know, it's not a priority and why it's actually better for their own sake and their own performance and own job, 
then you reach alignment and it's much easier you know, to build that relationship where you can start to push back. It makes a ton of sense. So there's a lot of McKinsey DNA in 360 learning. There's like yeah. four or five people I can think of. And so there's a lot of these ideas floating around. So I'm just curious, both for you as an individual, how it's impacted you, your time there. And, and how you how you think some of those ideas are floating around in the air here at 360? Yeah, so I only spent two years at McKinsey, uh, but I, I learned definitely learned a lot from uh, from that time. I think what is what was incredibly valuable is in two years, I did probably eight or nine different projects with uh, eight or nine different companies, different sectors, strategy, organization, operations topic. So you get it's like an MBA. You you understand everything in a company how it works from HR, finance, operations, sales, marketing. So it gives you a great business culture, I guess, and uh, exhaustive understanding of how things work, which helps, you know, on the sales side, marketing side, to understand the market, understand what are the pains of clients, etc. But also internally, help you understand HR, finance, and then the, the business function, how they work together. And Ben, just to put a finer point on it, what would a project be like? Like, what is the what is the goal of the project at that level? So you have three types of projects. You have either strategic projects, organizational projects, or operational projects. So a strategic project is usually a six to eight weeks project where you'll do, basically, you look at the market. Where is the market? You look at the company. Where is the company? And then you're looking at what are the potential, you know, five to seven years trajectory for that company and how they can get there. What are the investments they need to do? What are the choices they need to? So that's typically a strategic project. Organizational project, they chose a strategy. And now you're asking yourself, what is the right organization for the company to execute on that plan? So sometimes it's cost-cutting, but it's not always. Sometimes it's, it's, you know, it's changing the, the, the reporting lines, changing the way the team are structured, profiles of people. That's organizational topics. It's usually longer projects will take you know three to six months. And then you have operational projects, which are really trying to look at one of the KPI of the company and fixing it. So it's going to be the same longer, usually projects. Uh, you are doing a diagnostic where they are on a specific KPI, how you can improve. And then usually you are, you are implementing those recommendations. So usually it's, it's, you know, you see, I think in the way I describe those projects, how it really influences the way I work at 360, because that's also the same project that I'm trying to bring in the ops team to cover for the VP sales, the, the CRO, VP of customer success. Either we take strategic projects, you know, where are we, where we want to be and how we go there. Either we take organizational projects. So we have the business plan for next year and the year after. How many people do we need to hire? What would be the structure of the team? Number of managers, profile of people. Or operational projects. We have a specific issue on when you roll, specific issue on upsell. How do we deep dive, benchmark, and then change really operationally? do change management, change the processes and the tools. So it's kind of the same projects that you see in the upstream that I did at McKinsey. And maybe that's why I, you know, invented my role or built my role at 360 this way, because that's the only thing I knew. A lot of these big companies like McKinsey, I worked with some people earlier in my career who worked at Procter & Gamble, and it seemed like they had this way of working and those people, like it kind of drills it into you and you, you take that with you and you kind of keep it with you for the rest of your career. And it seems like McKinsey is perhaps sort of similar. A, would you agree with that? And B, how did they kind of, did the, what's their onboarding like? Are they training you? Are you working with another associate? Like how does that mindset get transmitted within the yeah, company? Yeah, uh, the, the onboarding is quite short. We had the one week uh, in Paris uh, where we had a lot of uh, role plays mostly, you know, how you handle a client, how you present in front of a client. It was a lot of communication actually and how you problem mm. solve. So how do you structure an analysis? 
how did you, you know, take an issue and break it down into sub-issues, et cetera, et cetera, until you get a point where you can actually understand what is happening. What are the drivers, you know, of a specific issue or KPI? That's the two things you learn for a week. And then week two, you're already on the job. You know, <laughs> week two, I was, uh, wow. I remember I was working for an oil and gas company in Paris. And uh, after, yeah, it was week two or week three. Uh, my my project was to challenge the business plan of that company and make sure the assumptions were sound. So it was a project for the board to check that the business plan was sound. And my responsibility was to challenge the business plan of a 500 million revenue part of the yeah, business unit. And so I was sitting with the CFO of that company, 22 or 23 years old. And so yeah, that's how you learn. You learn on the job. Uh, they immediately put you in front of the client and you have to figure it out. And then you have a lot of coaching from your manager from the partner, uh, but it's a really fast learning curve. You have to adapt fast. Do some people fail or do they, are they good at just picking the people who will succeed? In, yeah, it's a mix this? of both. I think, uh, yeah, definitely some people fail, uh, because they don't like, you know, the, either the pressure or, you know, they, uh, they cannot, uh, follow the pace. And then the selection process makes it so that you choose people that are able to communicate effectively, that are able to structure things and be very rational. So you know, that's the interview process is, is very rigorous so that you identify people who actually can do that quite naturally. That's super interesting. Let's talk about your journey here at 360 Learning because you joined as a strategy and operations manager, and this is well before yeah. my time. I never, I never knew you in that role, but talk a bit about that journey and what's maybe changed and what stayed the same. Because you were strategy operations manager, I'm yeah. looking at your LinkedIn, director of operations, VP of strategy operations, and then CEO. Yeah. So you've kind of had a lot of steps in that process. I mean, th those are, are sometimes just title, especially in a you know fast-growing company, you never know what is behind a title. Yes. But yes. yeah, I think I think the, the, the story for me is really a, a question of kind of right place, right time, right fit with the company, right skill set, and then uh, a lot of work. And that, that's kind of you know, what made this trajectory, I would say. I joined, as, as you said, as a, you know, individual contributor. So the company had raised the Series B at the time. So 10 million AR, 100 people. And we're looking at what's the next phase for them. So they had to hire a lot a lot of growth expectations, so needed to implement a lot of transversal processes. So I had to implement the OKR methodology. You know, today I'm still actually at 360, the one who is evaluating any uh, new joiners on the OKR methodology. So that's my, my baby. Incentive models, challenge the incentive models and make them a bit more robust and start to define what are the KPIs for each team. So that was the, the first project. This already gave me a, a great exposure to how the company works. You know, So I think this was also a bit of luck for me to start in that role because it, it allowed me to meet a lot of people and understand, you know, how the business works. Then I moved to customer success ops for about a year. So we had a churn issue at the time. So working with the VP of customer success, identifying, understanding what are the drivers of churn for our specific you know, industry and product and implementing a lot of things. The, the most impactful one was to start to sign contracts on 36 months. So, you know, immediately you're reducing the number of contracts that are renewing the next year. So the absolute number of churn is reducing fast. But it was also, you know, really turning down in the KPIs, understanding that you have two elements in churn, you know, the amount that is renewing and then the, the renewal rate basically, and then renewal rate, understanding what are the drivers for that. Anyway, did that for a year. That's where I think I proved that this methodology kind of inspired by the former consultant person that I was worked well. 
And so I took the, that's why I moved to director of operations. So it just means I started to coach the operations team. So just sales ops, customer success ops, and we had it enablement also in that team. Uh, enablement should be under CRO. We had it under ops because it also helps a lot for change management, I think. And there are a lot of synergies. And when at that time, so I started to also add the data team, build the data team, hiring Julie in the team that you know, and then hiring more people so that we really have scalable way of tracking KPIs. So I think that was the, you know, th that was a big milestone for me to cover a broader scope and really have a scalable way of tracking all the KPIs with the tools we implemented. Then moving to CEO was, I'll be transparent, but that's why I say right time, you know, right skill set. We raised the Series C in 2021. And so at that time, I think the finance team at 360 was not super robust in their understanding of the business plan and, uh, and the company. So this gave me the opportunity to actually build the business plan, present it to investors. So it gave me more exposure to Nick, the CEO, but also to our investors. I think this is what helped me also transition to COO because I was able to prove that I understand the business end-to-end -end in any team. And I can effectively manage complex projects like, like, you know, aligning the business plan with everyone internally and externally that kind of proved that I was able to do that. So then 2023, that's when I moved to COO role. And what does it mean? It means, so my scope grew significantly because now I am reporting to me. So marketing, HR, product, US revenue, and then all the, the ops team that we talked about. And the reason for that, I think is really, you know, we, we go back to the, the core strengths of the, an ops person is my role is not to be a functional expert in marketing or in product or in HR. I don't have experience there, so I don't think I'm, I'm an expert, but to make sure that everyone works well together, we are all aligned on the objectives. We all prioritize the right projects. We're all tracking the right KPIs, working in the right direction. So the CEO, Nick, is the one driving the strategy and I'm the one helping him orchestrating the execution of that strategy by making sure every C-level works on the right projects. So that's how I ended up in this position. But again, yeah, right place, right skill set, right fit with the culture. That's really important, I think. A lot of work. You have to prove your value and a bit of luck to have a founder like Nick who is willing to bet on uh, young people, you know, and coach them to grow in bigger roles. Hopefully listeners caught it when you were listing off the departments that report into you, but there's not that many that don't flow up through you. And is that a, a typical structure that you've seen? Is it atypical? I think it works in our company. Have you, have you seen that elsewhere? Is there a precedent? No, so I did not benchmark that much, to be honest. I kind of took the opportunity without asking myself the questions. No, but uh, more seriously, I, I've seen a few other companies that works like this, where you usually have a CEO who is in charge of the strategy, in charge of the board, in charge of, uh, you know, M&A, still manages finance and legal because those are you know, complex and strategic topics for the company, life or death in a sense, and then have a CEO who is in charge of the execution. I think that that is not atypical. In terms of how your mindset has been the same or is different as you've moved through these different roles, have you kind of just taken the same, the same mindset, the same kind of heuristics, ways of thinking? and applied them to problems that just were increasingly large in scale? Or did you find that you needed to make a significant shift in how you thought about the business from being CS ops to everything ops? Honestly, I think it's the same mindset. You know, what made me a good ops, I think, at the beginning was first being low ego. I think there is no room, in my opinion, you know, maybe people who listen or people at 60 will think otherwise, but I think uh, trying to be low ego trying to leave no room for politics. And as I said, be agnostic. You know, you're someone who's looking at figures and trying to make sure everyone is aligned on what are the figures so that we can then build a plan. So that's the first thing. 
The second thing was the ability to see both the big picture, but also be able to deep dive and be super granular. I think that's critical. And at the same ops level or CEO, at the ops level, you need to be granular to help your team, but you need to be able to take the big picture if you want to have that strategic relationship with the VP or the C-level you're working with. And when you're the you know, CEO, you have to be big picture. But same, if you want to take big decisions that actually drive value, you need to understand the granular data. Otherwise, you know, you're too far from the field and taking decisions that actually don't make sense. So that's the second thing. The third one was the ability to structure a problem, to help team focus, to cut the noise you know, and prioritize. I think that's really a critical thing that ops should do. Same, any level from IC to CEO, that's mm -hmm. critical. And the last one is the ability to communicate and adapt the way you communicate to different audiences. You're not going to talk the same way when you talk to the CEO or C-level or when you're going to talk to an IC. And those four things to me are critical. And taking a step back, you know, we are talking about McKinsey. I don't want to do advertising for McKinsey and I'm not, you know, there, there are a lot of great things about McKinsey, some other things that I didn't like, but the thing that I really helped me be much better in my job today are the things that I learned there, which is 80-20 being 80-20. You know, it's like you're working on very short projects at McKinsey. So you have to make the most out of those six weeks or five weeks, etc. So you cannot do everything. So you have to focus on what matter. You have to do ruthless prioritization all the time. So that's the first thing that I learned there. The second one is the pyramid principle. So we have a course actually at 360 on that, which is how you structure the way you communicate so that you can make sure that people will remember what you're saying, but also that it's a question of You, know, you can go really in the details or just stop at the first level and give the main idea in one second. That was a, a great thing that I learned there, I think. Third one is the ability to adapt to new situations, adapt to audience, adapt to changes, etc. You have to be very flexible. I think it's a quality that ops should have because especially in the fast-going environment, you know, your roadmap can change every month and you have to be fine with it and, and be able to move mm -hmm. uh, forward fast. Structured problem solving, definitely how you build an issue tree and, you know, break down the problem into sub-issues. Those are the four things that I learned at McKinsey that I think is still the mindset that I had when I was IC and, and, and now C-level. Now, what you said is, is interesting. I agree with you. It's like same mindset. It's just more noise and tougher decisions, you know. And that's why you need to get better on the same principle, but get better because the more noise there, there mm -hmm. is, the more value, the value that you have for the company is to cut that noise. That's my value, I think for Nick, the CEO, or other C-levels, mm -hmm. is to see all the noise that is coming back up from the field or from, you know, the other execs and help them, you know, cut and decide, okay, what are the three things, two things we are going to prioritize? We reduce the noise and we focus. So maybe to take a practical example, because if someone is starting out listening here in yep. marketing ops and they're like running campaigns or even sales ops, you know, they're managing comp plans and territories, or quite frankly, even from where I sit, you know, there's a certain scope of the business that's under my purview but you're looking at everything. So I'm just curious, in your mind, you start your day, you look at your metrics. Now, how are you thinking about the business from there and juggling priorities? Because it could go from anywhere from like, are we doing the right product features? Do we have the right positioning? Are we hitting our demand gen targets? Is our forecast yeah. on point? How's our cash flow? Like you have such a scope of issues that you could be worried about to the extent that it's possible. I'm just curious how your mental uh, train of thought goes. It's a good Good question. I, I never uh, put a words or a theory behind that. Um, but I think what I do is you know, I see the business as three. It's a SaaS company, so it's always the same structure. We have three main areas. So do we manage to capture and create demand? 
do we manage to convert that into dollars? And do, and do we manage to retain that? Uh, and then the product is everywhere. The product will influence, you know, the demand capture or demand generation part, the conversion and the retention. So product is everywhere. And then for each of those three buckets, I tried to look at, as you said, the KPIs and where we are versus where we could be. And in my mind, I think it's a, a matrix of potential impact versus feasibility. And I think that's how I take my decisions. It's always, I look at those three buckets and ask myself, what will drive ultimately the most value for the company, AR growth? Is it to try to fix the churn? Is it to try to fix the conversion of opportunities to booking? Or is it to try to generate more opportunities? And so for concrete example, right now, I look at our company, I think we, we generate a lot of demand. Uh, we generate a lot of opportunities. We struggle to convert them into bookings in some geographies. And then we retain them quite well. If I compare to the market, we are, you know, in the top 25%. So that's kind of in my mind. We are best in class in demand generation. We are best in class in retention. We are not at the middle. So I'm going to put all my energy on that problem because if I fix that, that's how I'll bring more value for the company. So that, that, that's, I don't know if it answers your question, but that's kind of how I would prioritize. But no, six does. months ago, it you know, does. I look at the same picture. We need to create demand or, or capture demand. We need to convert it. We need to retain. We don't have a VP marketing. So that's where I'm going to put my focus, you know. So that's, that's when, I mean, you know, it will work together. That's when I, I said, okay, I'm going to, to be acting as VP to the best of my ability uh, and help the team perform because that's where I can add the most value and, and where is the highest risk, you know, in the company. So in terms of same matrix, impact, feasibility, that was the biggest red dot, you know, on my dashboard in my mind. I think it's, it's very elegant and it's very simple the way that you describe it. And, you know, to the extent that I've internalized that and practice it myself, it works very well. I think where that description of it and where reality can sometimes fall apart is like, like you said, it's the noise. Yeah. It's the it almost you seem it seems you need to have a very strong shield against all the millions of things your inbox fills up your Trello notifications fill up and yet you you are the most responsive executive I've ever worked with as well like many executives are kind of like floating in outer space and they descend periodically to you know issue commandments or ask where things are this is why I sort of have a theory that you were bitten by a radioactive spider at some point and have some kind of superpower or something you seem to be able to thread that needle very well of maintaining that big picture perspective and yet being very active in lots of different topics and being present I, I think it maybe I don't know if it's the way I work so I can give you the, the secret sauce I have my notebook you know and I have mm -hmm. all my topics on my notebooks and basically mm -hmm. I'm looking at my email and my Trello notification. When something is important enough, it goes on my list. And then I look at this list every morning and I ask myself, same, you know, matrix, impact, feasibility, and I would add urgency, you know, in a sense. And I ask myself, okay, mm -hmm. what are the five things that I need to handle today or, you know, 10 things or whatever. And I guess that's, that's how I manage, I think, to try, I try not to be late on feedback that I give on presentation. For example, you know, we, we are going to do a, big marketing campaign. So I know that I need to give feedback by date X. So it's on my list. And the more I go, you know, the closer we get to that date, the more this becomes in my mind red. So, you know, when I come in the morning, okay, this now I have to do it today. There is no, you know, no option for me. So usually then I, I put a spot on my calendar and say no meeting feedback for this campaign, you know, and that's, that's how I ensure that I get things done. I think I have this exhaustive list that I maintain. And every day I'm asking myself, what is the priority on that matrix and setting time in my calendar to make sure that I actually do it. Because otherwise it's easy to, you know, to get lost in your day, 
you're tracking notifications, emails, you get in a meeting and you forget that it was your priority. It's in my agenda, so I know I'm going to do it. And then it's rigor that, you know, that if something in your agenda, you're going to do it. I want to go from there to go-to-market strategy, which is, to me, go-to-market strategy is a bit like the word yeah. lead, you know, or the yeah. word campaign. Like, it's one of those words that means everything and sometimes nothing the all at the same time. And so how do you think about it? Like, you know, let's say you're starting a new company. What do you think of when you think of go-to-market strategy? What are the components? So uh, I'm really not an expert on that topic, so I'll, I'll give my thoughts, but probably you'll need to interview uh, in another podcast like Caroline or... You're, en you're enough of an expert for me, yes. for me. So again, so at 360, really the, the go-to-market strategy, you know, is the CEO, it's Nick, plus the marketing team. So I, I think I learned a lot from them. So I'll give you what I understood from what I observed and what I would do if I was to start. So if we set apart all the, the product part of the go-to-market strategy, you know, do you have product market sheet? Is it the right product, etc. So that's prerequisite that I, I did not, you know, I, I joined 360 product market fit was already there. To me, there are two questions is, is who you're selling to and, and how you're getting that product in front of them, you know, how you're getting that product to them, how they're buying. So who, what is the ICP? So what's the typical, you know, company you're going to sell to and who is the persona who is actually going to buy that? So that's the first part. I think it's critical to spend a lot of time on that. That's where we struggle at 360 because we have a horizontal product. So we can sell, you know, to a hundred people company up to 150,000 people company, and we can sell to LVMH luxury company, but also to a tech startup, et cetera. So it's tougher for us because the ICP is any company. Ideally, you want to have something a bit sharp, uh, especially if you want to go, uh, you know, outbound for example. But so you start with that. What is the ICP? What's the typical company that is going to buy from us? And so for us at 360, for example, it's not industry. It's not the size. It's going to be more. You know, the probability that they have internal knowledge that they want to share, internal skills. So then you start to see what are companies that have internal expertise that they need to share. So then you go back to industry. So manufacturing companies, Safran is a great client. They have internal experts. All their knowledge and skills are internal. So they'll need a system like 360. Uh, LVMH, they are releasing new collections every, you know, three weeks, three months, I don't know. So they have to train all their sellers to those new collections. This can come only from internally. So that's why they'll need a system like 360. So that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Like, what is the company, the type of company that are going to use us? Usually it's industry and size, but it can go further, just like the example that I give. And then who, the persona, who are you going to see in the sales process? Who is going to see, take the decision, but who is going to be the champion? And understand how do those people think? And I think we had a lot of discussions on our persona, you know, how they think, do they think about ROI or actually it's not what they care about. And, and I think that's an important part of the go-to-market strategy is to meet a lot of people that are your persona to understand how they think. Because especially when you're an ops person, you really don't think like most of the, you know, of the people in a company. Uh, it's not the same way we, we think about, you know, only KPIs and process and tools. That's the obsession. A lot of people don't think like that and rightfully so, you know, if you're the best salesperson, you're not going to be obsessed by KPIs, processing tool. So who is the persona? How they take decisions? What do they care about? So once you really understand that, then you move to how. So how you're going to get the product in front of them? Is it inbound? Is it outbound? So I think that depends on also the market structure. Is it an equipment market? Is it a replacement market? If it's an equipment market, to me, it's easier to go outbound because you're calling people and saying, this is something new. You've never seen it. You want to see and try. That's just if it's a replacement market, you're calling them. We are, you know, we're 360. We do that. I already have a system in place. Call me back in two years. So 
understanding what is the dynamic of the market. Uh, is it going to be sales-led, product-led, or hybrid? And yeah, really, I think that that's the how, and then you adapt your strategy. If it's inbound, then you think of, okay, where is my audience? Where do they take their information? Is it in directories? Is it on Google? Is it Instagram? Is it, you know, where is the audience? Where do I want to put my message? And what message do I want to put there? And if it's outbound, it's more a question of territory, contact list, quality of the data, and messaging always. That's, you know, how I picture it in my mind. It's the who and the how. And I think that's critical to go in that level of detail on the how. For example, equipment versus replacement to me, it's critical because I see a lot of blogs and articles on, on how, you know, how outbound should work, for example. But I think how outbound should work is not a good article. How outbound should work in a replacement market when the sales cycle is nine months and the implementation timeline is six months. That, that's a good article that I will want to read because it will be different than how outbound works for a, an equipment market with a sales cycle of two weeks, product-led, not the same motion. You know. It's easy to get lost in those kind of one-size-fits-all approach. And uh, I think it's a common mistake that people tend to do. Uh, invite people to go one level below. If I'm translating what you're saying to a degree, it's taking the tactics, adding the customer context, the business context, and looking at all those variables rather than, you know, in a very one-sided point of view. And you mentioned qualitative aspect of this. You listen to a lot of calls. I don't know if we have a leaderboard in Gong about who listens to the most calls, but you'd be up there, I'm sure, if there was one. You alluded to it that you can just focus on KPIs, but what does that qualitative anecdotal customer context give you that the KPIs alone yeah. don't? So that's how I think we should, when you talk about go-to-marketing, KPIs and then reality checks, quality assessment. It's easy, you know, for example, the KPIs, you create what people did during the tech bubble. You create an ad on LinkedIn saying, I'll give you $150 gift card if you join on my demo. So you get thousands of MQLs, then they don't convert. So maybe you're going to blame the rep, you know, and say, oh, we are not able to, or the product is not right, or et cetera. Until you listen to that call and you realize that the person is not listening, they're just here for the 150 bucks. Like this, it sounds obvious, but uh, I mean, I don't know what's the percentage of SaaS company that did aggressive marketing tactics to get to pay for meetings. So that's the first thing that I would say. And then the second thing is I'm listening to call because a lot of the go-to market is about execution. So you, you set a guideline, especially at the sales level, less for marketing, but you set a guideline and you say the, the pitch is that, the slides are that. And then you expect that magically everyone is going to replicate that until you go in the calls. And then that's where you realize that the sales reps are actually not using the story or not using the slides. And uh, sometimes rightfully so, sometimes they do a great job of adapting. That's how you learn also how to improve your pitch. But I think that's why you need to be in the calls and have this quality data. It's to better understand the persona, but also how you're executing. You know, how is your team implementing the plan that you do? You do that beautiful plan on the slide that you have to, to go and listen. I guess it's just being in touch with reality yep. in a way. I mean, both the metrics and the calls are different ways of accessing that reality, but otherwise you're just in yep. a bubble. And if you do only the qualitative, you're probably going to miss the big picture and don't see what are the big issues because you're going to hear in three calls that the competitor, this competitor is winning against you. So you're going to say, okay, this is our issue. And if you only look at the KPIs, you're going to lose, lose that, uh, as you said, reality check aspect of uh, what is actually happening. Why are we losing deals? Why are we losing deals at the, early, at the beginning of the funnel or at the end of the funnel? What is actually happening? The KPIs will tell you where you lose the deal. But why you're losing them, you'll have to go and listen to the calls. I want to ask a fun one. We are an international yeah. company, four different markets, people from, from all over, but large population of French employees, 
and now a large population of North American, mostly U.S., but increasingly now Canadian employees. And it was it was interesting for me when I joined, like just to get my perspective, like, okay, it's not that it gets that different. Everybody speaks English. I'm communicating. It was only until I was first in a meeting with just American employees that I, I was like, oh, wait a second. There's, there's something to, like the sense of familiarity that I felt there made me realize how there was this subtle difference when I was only working with my French coworkers, not in a bad way, but something intangible. And so you, I know, lived uh, in New York for a while, so you've had deep exposure in both places. I'm just curious for your perspective on business culture, France versus North America. What are the differences and how do you find it kind of working with this international team? That's an interesting question. You can be yeah, as yeah. diplomatic or not that, as, as That's as what you I'm thinking, want. you know, how do I put that together? <laughs> yeah. Uh, because I, I'm uh, I'm biased, you know. I, I'm talking as a French person in that, uh, in that so uh, my my answer might be too French. No, I think the the big differences that I saw, I think, uh, and are a challenge, honestly, on a daily basis, it's uh, how we communicate and how we give feedback. That's to me the number one risk is that because in France, since you're very little at school, where you you know you're young, you're being told not to talk. In a, you know, in the classroom. So it's very, the teacher is talking and the students are listening. And the second thing is the way we grade. Uh, we grade out of 20. If you have 14 out of 20, it's already really good. And 16, it's excellent. And it's kind of, that's, you see that in the site in France, you know, if your boss tells you it's not too bad, it means that it's good. You know, uh, that's how we say it. And then in the US, it's completely the opposite. You know, you have people who grew up in schools where we push them to talk more, to give their opinion. Uh, and they have, you know, a GPL. Everyone is between, I don't know exactly, but I guess everyone is between three and four and, and or 2.5 and, and four, you know, and, and four out of four is, is common, you know, four out of four is really good. In France, you'll get, never you'll get 20 out of 20. And the way you give feedback to people is you emphasize on a lot on what is great. And then you suggest how to improve uh, versus in France. I think you tend to go straight to what can you improve here. Let's not waste time on what is good. We all know it. Let's, so that's the main challenge in the way we communicate. So, so we're more, we're more delicate. We need more, we need more validation in North yeah, America. Yeah, but on the other end, you could say um, that, uh, you know, French people are too pessimistic or too negative and, uh, and there is a real energy in the way, uh, US people, you know, um, communicate and work together, uh, because you share encouragement and gives, it gives motivation. So we have to learn from each culture. I think French people don't shy away from the real issues. And that can be the, the, you know, the risk in the US. It's not being able to address fast enough the issues, I think. Uh, but on the other end, French people tend to focus only on the negative. And so there is a motivation aspect. So that's the main thing that I see on a daily basis. Then there are a lot of other things, obviously. But managing a company internationally, that's the main thing that I see. Is there less tolerance for humor and banter and off-topic discussion in French culture? Or is that just more a 360 thing? Because that was one thing that was a bit of a shock to the system was, like, we're really efficient in how we communicate. Everything is really direct. There wasn't a lot of casual chat. More so, I think, with, with the French side. But I don't know if that's just more related to our culture of convexity or if that's a French standard ever and you know where you're like why are you wasting time with like kind of off-topic things i don't know definitely 360 learning is not on the fun is not the peak of 360 in terms of in france you know i think it's like we hired people with convexity we have a mindset that is i think attracting people that want to have an impact and and maybe tend to value less fun at work uh, it's it's possible versus what even what i saw at mckinsey in paris you know probably was there was more banter and 
and humor when you could do it not in front of the clients. So definitely it's a 360 yeah. long thing. I really don't know. I don't have enough experience to tell you, you know, if it's, if it's a friend's US or it's just 360 learning. But when I talk to my friends, they all joke about 360 learning friends being uh, so serious. So maybe there's a little column A, a little column B there. Yeah, it's been it's been super interesting for me, but just it's the sort of thing you don't even realize there can be differences there until you experience them firsthand. I know we've only got a few minutes. I just want to close with maybe one big picture question to the extent that you you have an opinion on this, but like things have changed in the the SaaS environment. We've both been been working in tech for a long time now. And, you know, living inside this 10-year bubble of endless cash. And now that's kind of gone away for how long? Who knows? But I'm curious, to what extent will it change? Are we going to see more bootstrapped companies? Are we going to see differences in buying behavior? Certainly the growth at all costs mindset is gone and efficient growth is now the word of the day for many people. But I just, to what extent are we going to be like, ah, actually we're back and the good times are going to roll again? Or is this a permanent change? I feel like I'm too young to answer that question. And it's like uh, the, the, <laughs> you're supposed to ask that to uh, an old guru giving you in their wisdom on the market. And I feel like I, I, I know, I, but you're 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 looking at things. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if I have the uh, the the, the metric. It's an interesting question because I would I would love to to spend more time to gather facts and build a real opinion. But I'll give you on, on top of my head what I think. So for the, if we're just talking tech ecosystem, I think there are two drivers. The first one is is the interest rates, and the second one is the you know overall economy. Interest rates, I cannot forecast what they will be, but. Definitely, if you look at the bubble, it's it's quite tied to the. It's either you know money becomes cheap, so people are willing to take more risk, and so there is a lot of money being invested in the tech ecosystem, and so you start to see a lot of companies, even some that don't make sense at all, uh, like the you know free riding scooters or the delivery um, company that we had in France. We had so many of them. You know business model that don't make sense, but you sell the dream, you get the money because it's cheap. Mm-hmm. Really depends on interest rates or the promise of return being huge. I think interest rates are here to remain quite high according to what the Fed is saying or the uh, European Union. So I don't expect money to become cheap in the coming years, uh, two or three years, but again, I don't know. Then the hype part, we see that AI, you know, we still see companies AI-based, at least in France, but I think it's the same in the US, raising huge amount of money, sometimes just on a pitch deck or on a, on a Serie A, you know, um, product. And that's, you know, it's either money is cheap or the promise of return is super high. So. Uh, that's what we see today, I guess. Companies that can sell a huge dream with AI will still manage to raise money. The others, it will be tougher as long as interest rates are high. So I would say that's the perspective. The second thing I would say is that the, the rest, you know, depends also on the overall economy because the tech ecosystem is just a small part of the overall economy. Um, mm-hmm. How the global economy will go in the coming years depends you know, on interest rates again, but also mostly depends on energy. You know, what's the price of energy? If you look at GDP growth and energy consumption, it's basically a straight correlation. So the question you're asking me is, is the, the oil production and coal production is going to decrease or increase? And what's the price of gas and oil going to be? When you look at most reports, it seems that people are saying that it's going to, it's progressively uh, stagnating, slowing down the increase in production in oil and coal. And then for the tech ecosystem, you know, in the coming six nine months or 12 months, what I think will happen is we'll see more consolidation, more, more M&A for sure, because some companies are going to run out of cash and going to get bought for, for low multiples. So some private equity companies are already starting to do that. You know, you buy tech companies and you consolidate the market. And the second thing is AI race, definitely. 
every company is investing, I think, in AI and the one who cannot will probably be behind. So we are going to see that. And uh, it's going to be a, a fun thing to watch, you know, is it the incumbent that are going to win or the new players that come with an on the AI? Mm-hmm. And the last part, I think, for the incumbent, it's going to be a race to be a, a source of truth, you know, a system of records of something, because that's how you get sticky. Yeah. Uh, DERP, you know, uh, look at SAP, Workday, etc. They are still, they've been here for 20, 30 years. People have been trying to disrupt them. Why are they still here? It's impossible to unplug them because they are the system of record of most data in a company, you know, most. Uh, so he, I think most companies are going to try to fight to be the system of record. And you can see why 360 is going to win, you know, on our own market. I think it's a healthy thing to some extent that a lot of these businesses, like you said, that never made sense, the rubber will hit the road when people don't have unlimited cash to be like, okay, sure, like, let's try it. It's a good idea when they're really looking at expenses through a stricter filter, looking at hiring through a stricter filter, looking at the projects and initiatives with it, like it's enforcing a discipline in many areas. And that comes back to us as well, because if we're not delivering value, like people are not going to necessarily be open to an LMS project. So it forces that everybody to deliver yeah. value in that way. And, and short term, it's going to be interesting. The last thing that we're going to see in my opinion, it's like price dynamic. I'm curious to see how they will evolve. Because I think the, the companies that, that are not positioned very well are going to race to the bottom in, com- in terms of price. Uh, and then the companies mm-hmm. that are doing well are going to try to increase their price with inflation to uh, you know go to profitability at one point. But they're going to have to be even better, as you said, at throwing value in order to differentiate and justify the higher price versus the competition. I think that's what we're going to see right now. And I, I mean, I'm saying that because we see it on our market. You can see that the weaker, the ones that are not well positioned are going to discount more and more. And the, the ones that are well positioned have a challenge of how do we make sure that we you know, prove value convince the decision maker so that they are willing to pay the premium for our system and don't go for the cheaper one. Well, Ben, I'm really grateful for you uh, hanging out with me, having this discussion. Yeah, thanks again for having me, uh, Justin. I hope it was interesting. It certainly was. All right, we'll speak again soon. Bye. Hey, everyone. I want to invite you over to the RevOps FM Substack community, where you can sign up to get rough transcripts, show notes, longer form articles, and other bonus content. Just head over to revops.fm slash subscribe to get free access. I'd also love to know what you thought of the episode and to hear suggestions for topics you want to learn about. Feel free to leave a comment on Substack or send me an email at justin at revops.fm. Thanks for listening.